This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering Bible questions, life questions, whatever is going on. All you have to do is call. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, nothing to talk about today's scheduling, so let me get right to questions. The first one comes from our mobile app from Chip. He says, what was the reason for God to mask, and mask is in quotes, where Jesus was born and where he came from, and he identifies Galilee and Nazareth in John chapter 7, verses 41 and 42. Uh, Let me read it. It says, still others ask, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lives? Uh, Chip, the one thing we have to do is differentiate between where he was born and where he came from or even came out of. In Matthew chapter 2, we we have uh, both ideas presented before us. And uh, I don't think God was masking it at all. But what he was really doing, if you think about it, Chip, was he was making the prophecies of Jesus' birth uh, and his life and, and, and ministry, he was making it even more difficult to fulfill. I mean, it'd be one thing to say, yes, he's born in Bethlehem. Everybody knows from Micah that it has to be, he has to be born in Bethlehem. But he was also giving other clues to the people in the region. Now, you'll also remember that in Galilee or Nazareth, um, you know, they weren't considered the best of the best. I mean, um, Galileans spoke with this pronounced lisp, and they sounded sort of dumb and be kind of like, and I don't mean to offend anybody from the South here, but, but when somebody speaks with a Southern accent, a very thick or deep Southern accent, it's hard to sometimes take them seriously. It's hard to, I, I know really, really smart people, but they don't sound smart when they talk. Well, that would describe Galilee. And in Nazareth, Jesus was asked, uh, or about Jesus, he, he, the question was asked, how can any good thing come from Nazareth? Because it was a place where people were just sort of um, basic. They didn't have much going for them, and they were looked down upon. And I think it's important, Chip, because what God was doing was saying, no, God came for everybody. And yes, he was born in Bethlehem to fulfill the scriptures, but he came out of Galilee, and he came out of Nazareth to fulfill prophecy as well. So I hope that answers your question, Chip. Thank you for asking Uh, Here is a question from David. This is one of my favorite questions, but I never really have a good answer for it. Pastor Ryan, how can we better prepare for the rapture of the church? David, there's only one way to prepare. Um, We be with Jesus. Every day we pursue righteousness. We live our lives with zeal. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord, Paul writes. And so I think what we have to do is be with Jesus, be about his business, his will, not our will be done in our lives. And the only way we can do that, David, is to appreciate the the, the time. 
Paul in writing to the church at Ephesus. He says to make the most of every opportunity. Uh, the King James says redeeming the time. Why? Because the time is short. And so what we need to do, David, in these last days, and I, I, I'll say this over and over, we are in the very last hours of the very last days. And to prepare for the rapture of the church, we've got to be about his business, and his business is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, making disciples, uh, keeping the work going. I think sometimes, David, we have a tendency, um, well, the time's short, so let's just do nothing and wait. But Jesus said that we're to occupy until he comes. And that means every minute of every day needs to be filled with his will for our lives. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to be able to do other stuff. I mean, we have jobs, but we can be his light at our work. We have families. We can take our families with us through the Bible. We can, we can make sure that they're prepared for Jesus. Um, wherever you go, one of the things that Paul and I do when we go places is we've asked the Lord for opportunities to share. And what we want to do is look for the opportunities. We call them those divine appointments. And sometimes we'll just insert ourselves in situations and sometimes um, we'll say, yeah, that was a divine appointment. Others will say, no, no door is open there. But we're active in sharing our faith. Uh, Paul, writing to Philemon in the sixth verse, says, I pray that you will be active in sharing your faith. Philemon was a pastor. I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith so that we'll have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. That's how we prepare for the rapture. It's not a bunch of things that we do. It's who we're with. It's about where our priorities are. It's about where our heart is. And David, that's the only thing that we can do. It's just let him do the work in us. So that's the only preparation. My final thought on this, David, is as you seem to understand, uh, the rapture is the next event on the prophetic calendar. Nothing else has to happen uh, before Jesus decides to call this church home to be with him. He's not coming to the earth. He's going to call us to meet him in the air. And then John chapter 14 says he's going to take us to be with him where he is. And we're going to be there for a period of seven years as earth judges time. We're, we're going to be outside of time and space. But as earth judges time, we're going to be with the Lord for seven years. That will be the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then we're going to wake up out of that wedding banquet and we're going to find ourselves coming to earth with Jesus in Revelation chapter 19 to judge the world, to set things right, to create a new earth, new heaven eventually. And we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Thank you very much. Uh, let's go to uh, Salado, Texas, and talk with Alan on line one. Alan, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Uh, thank you for taking my call, Pastor. I appreciate it. Uh, in Daniel eleven thirty seven, there's a verse that says, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any gods, for he shall magnify himself above all. I think what I'm stumped on is the desire of women. What does that mean? Um, let me read the verse out of mine. I'm trying to find it here, Alan. I'll get here. It is. Uh, the NIV says, He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Um, uh, this is obviously referring to the man that we call the Antichrist. And he doesn't come to power by starting out exalting himself above all other gods. He starts out small, a very humble beginning. Uh, as the world views him, it will be a very attractive package. Uh, in chapter 7 of Daniel's prophecy, uh, we read that he begins as the little horn who rises to power in a ten-nation European coalition uh, the revived Roman Empire. And all of that is suggested he's going to begin as a man of peace uh, whose real goal, his hidden agenda, is to rule the world. Um, with regard to, and I'm going to take both of these issues that you asked about, Alan. With regard to he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Uh, I don't think that's a good uh, translation. The Hebrew word is Elohim. 
and it usually describes the God of Abraham, the God of the Jews. Um, this has led some to speculate that the Antichrist is Jewish and turns away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't actually uh, believe that to be the case. It seems patently unlikely that Jews at any time would accept a non-Jew um, uh, as their uh, as their Messiah. So um, proponents of this view uh, would say they simply believe the other one. Now, the one that you asked about, and the interesting phrase here, um, he is uh, uh, for the de- one desired by women uh, is is probably a better translation of that. And there's two possibilities here. Uh, one is, depending on how the translation should read, um, the first is that he will have no regard for the one desired by women, meaning the Messiah, uh, from from um, Haggai 2.7. Um, it was a title of, of uh, Jewish women wanted to be the mother Messiah. They always did. Um, when you find in the triumphal entry donkeys tied up all over Jerusalem, it's, it's, they, they expected the Messiah. Um, the other possible meaning, and this is the one that gets most of the, of the speculation, Alan, is that he will not regard the desire of women indicating to many that the Antichrist will be homosexual. Um, there's no way to know for sure. I personally don't think it's important. The Antichrist is going to be so filled with evil, there is no end to the evil that he will do. I think the most accepted understanding of that. Um, is that he will be a, a, a homosexual man, um, just another way to flaunt his sin in the face of God, which we know will be the Antichrist's desire. So, uh, again, I don't personally think it's important. I, 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 when I teach the book of Daniel, I don't spend a lot of time on it because there's really no way to know where the translation is. Uh, he won't de- desire women or he'll be the one desired by women. So uh, that isn't open, and, and I, I'm not hedging my bets here at all, Alan. It's just there's no way to know which of those things is true. Thank you for calling. I appreciate it very, very much. Here's an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, I feel like God has turned his back on the United States. Why would he do this? Anonymous, um, and, and, and please don't misunderstand me or, nor take offense, but... Uh, It is an amazing thing to me that anyone would ask that question. How could God turn his back on the United States when it was the United States who's turned our backs on God, even in much of the professing church? You know, this reminds me, Anonymous, of Pharaoh hardening his heart. You know, the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart seven times and and then suddenly it's a God hardened Pharaoh's heart and uh, especially Calvinists will grab that and say, well, God has the right to harden any heart that he wants to harden. But, but um, we forget that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He had every opportunity and he hardened his heart. Now let me make this more specific to your question. Uh, the United States has not only abandon God they've tried to push him out of every phase of social life we have murdered 65 millionish babies in the womb since 1973 we mock God we mock his blessings the United States was raised I believe for one reason, to be Israel's protector, to provide the, the nation that would protect Israel when in 1948 they were allowed to resume uh, their identity in their homeland. And the United States for many, many decades has done a wonderful job of that, but suddenly we're now, as we get closer to the last days, um, we've turned our back on Israel. We've tried to bargain away Israel's land. We've tried to... Um, um, negotiate Israel really out of existence, surrounded by people that want to destroy them, and we've not taken Israel's position. God said to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who will curse you. This shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. With all of the blessings that we've had, material blessings, we are the world's largest producer of pornography by far. 
And this is a country that is even now trying to keep churches closed, actively trying to keep churches closed. So why would you think God has turned his back on the United States when in fact it's the United States that's turned its back on God? I mean, consider that even professing Christians blaspheming the name of God have embraced homosexuality. Consider how we are ashamed of the word of God. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you don't confess me before men, I won't confess you before my Father in heaven. Uh, We're no better anonymous than Israel was, Jews were, when they fashioned a golden calf. You know, I pray every day, Anonymous, for a lot of people, um, just people who've touched my life or uh, groups of people with different behaviors. And I beg God to move on their hearts to bring them to repentance. But some of those people are very famous, very public people who just flaunt their sin in God's face. They mock him in the process. We send our own children, Christians now, Anonymous, we send our own children to universities, pay thousands upon thousands of dollars to do it, knowing that they're going to try to steal our children's faith. Think about that for a moment. We've turned our back on God and we're going to reap what we've sown. Now, I don't think, I want to be clear because you don't specify exactly what you're talking about, but I don't believe that the coronavirus is a judgment sent by God. I've said all along, from the very beginning of this, when it first started on this program, and certainly to my church, I've said that God is going to use this virus to shake out his church, not to shake up, He's not judging his church. He's shaking out the wheat and the tares. I think we're going to find that there's a whole lot of tares that have been sitting in church for a very long time, and as soon as things get tough, they stop coming. Church attendance in most places is a fraction of what it was if, in fact, the churches are even open. Can you imagine, Anonymous? Pastors, teachers of God's word, locking the doors on their churches. We've got churches right here in San Antonio that will not open at least at the earliest until 2021. That means their people have gone without hope. Their people have gone without the word of God. Their people have gone without the fellowship that we're commanded in the Bible to have. And these are Christians, supposedly. What's happened to us? What, what's happened to our faith? Not only with the virus, but look at the things that are happening. We, lawlessness runs rampant in our major cities. Isaiah says, a time is coming and I believe we're living in it when good will be called evil and evil is called good. So Anonymous, it's not God's action turning his back on us. We've turned so far away from God. Now let me give you some good news and I'll move on to another question. The good news is that God always has a remnant. And Anonymous, you and I, we can be a part of that remnant simply by repenting personally if necessary. And accepting the command that he's given us to go proclaim the gospel. But too often we Christians have decided that comfort is more important than zeal. Comfort is more important than honoring Christ. And what we've got to do is we've got to decide once and for all
that we're willing to share in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. And none of us wants to suffer, for sure. I'm the biggest wimp in Texas. But we have to understand that persecution and suffering is part and parcel of our call. So God hasn't turned his back on us. We're the ones who have done the turning away from God. Thank you for the question. And remember, this is a a clarion call to all Christians to pray, to pray over and over and over, constantly, without ceasing. Not for our nation to turn one way or the other in terms of Republican or Democrat. But pray for revival. Pray for a move of God's Spirit. One other thing I want to say, I know I said that I'd say that one last thing. But you know what I find funny? California is uh, as rebellious toward God as any place in the world right now. California is actively pursuing churches to try to close them, those who are in defiance of the state mandates to close. Uh, California has um, legislated sin uh, into being something that the world views as honorable. And you know what I find interesting? In those churches that are opening in defiance of the state's mandates, their churches, I said earlier that church attendance in most places a fraction of what it was what it used to be. In these churches where pastors are boldly proclaiming the word of God from the pulpit and they're open in spite of what the state says, their attendance has doubled and in some cases tripled. We're talking medium sized churches, huge churches, and they can't get all the people in. Why? Because there is a hunger out there. The Spirit of God is moving. And don't be surprised. It was California in the 60s, 1960s, where the Jesus movement began. Calvary Chapel, of course, was the vanguard of that movement. The last legitimate revival in the world. Don't be surprised if it isn't California again when God honors that true remnant and pours out his spirit one more time before he comes. Now, I'd like it to be Texas Anonymous, but the rest is up to you. 340-9585. We've only got three minutes left in this half, so uh, we'd love your calls on the other side of the break. Here's a question from Amanda. She says, when do we receive the Holy Spirit? Amanda, we receive the Holy Spirit the moment, the instant we're born again. When we surrender our hearts to Jesus, ask him to come by faith and live in our hearts, giving him control of our lives, that's when we receive the Holy Spirit. The fullness of Godhead in bodily form, Paul says in Colossians, comes to live in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. So that's when we receive him and we have all the power of heaven available. I think your confusion is that there are sometimes subsequent experiences with the power of the Holy Spirit that makes it appear as though it is uh, something else, another occasion that we receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Holy Spirit comes upon us in power, triggered by our obedience. But uh, we receive the fullness of God's Spirit the moment we surrender our heart to Jesus Christ. If you want more of the Holy Spirit, you want the power of the Holy Spirit, you can say, I'm filled with the Spirit or baptized in the Spirit. You call it whatever you want. The important thing is that we get it. And the way we get it, Acts 5.32, is to obey God, to step out in His will, be obedient, to walk with Jesus. And then all of that power, the power that raised Christ from the dead, lives in us. And we can have a second experience. But, but it's not accurate to say a second experience only because this is an experience, Amanda, that we need to have every single day. Every day, we should not walk out of our, our, our homes without asking God for the power of the Spirit. Lord, today, I, I choose to serve you. Today, I'm going to be obedient. And today, I need your power. And if we'll do that, then that power will come upon us as needed, and we will have all of the power that we need to fulfill the call of God in each and every one of our lives. 
So, men, it's very important. We receive the Spirit. We're sealed by the Spirit upon conversion. But there is still that day-to-day power of God that is available as we walk through the day with Jesus. One of the reasons, Amanda, I say all the time, just be with Jesus, is because when you're walking with Jesus, you're talking to him, you're hanging out with him, then that power is always something that you're aware of. It's always available. And you just watch and see how the Lord will use you. Well, there's our music. We've done 30 minutes of the program. We would love your live calls and questions at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word of Santa for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Remember, you're way more interesting than I am, so uh, we would love your calls. Here's a question from Dwayne. What do you know about Ray Comfort's ministry? Uh, Dwayne, I know Ray. Uh, We're not like best buds or anything, but he uh, was a Calvary Chapel pastor out of Bellflower, California. And uh, he is a really, really good guy. Loves Jesus with all of his heart. And here's what I think about his ministry. He is a modern-day zealot for Jesus. So I, I have issues sometimes with people who have these systems, you know, this is the way you always do something, and, and make no mistake, he's got a system. But this man is a zealot for God, and uh, he literally is out there all the time putting himself on the line as he ministers to people, evangelizing them, and he's leading people to Christ. God is using him as God will use every zealot. So God is, is, I mean, Ray Comfort is one of those people that will always be available to God. He's one of these men that walks in the power of the Spirit. And, um, um, you know, he gets trashed a lot. He, he, gets, he puts himself in harm's way uh, when he's sharing with people. But um, I, I love the man's heart, and his ministry is, is exceptionally effective, and God honors it. Does he share the way I would share? Nope. But he wasn't asked by God to share the way I share. So this is a man that uh, you're going to listen to. Now, he has Dwayne, and maybe this is where you heard about him, but he's got uh, a ministry on YouTube. I think it's called Living Waters. And um, uh, you want to spend an hour or two hours um, just watching a modern-day zealot um, go to his, his his YouTube videos are like eight, nine, ten minutes long usually. But he's just popping people in the face with Jesus and their sin. And, and and again, I just love the ministry. I love his heart. And he is a uh, um, I, 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 I'm I'm envious of him in that regard. So um, I, I can't recommend it uh, more highly than that. I've only known uh, one other guy uh, that I could say is a zealot for Jesus Christ. Um, he's another Calvary Chapel pastor, and, and uh, Mike McIntosh is his name. And um, uh, different ministry altogether than Ray Comfort has. Uh, but he's also an evangelist, and uh, zeal consumes him. Uh, so those are the two men that I, I think really, really highly of for nothing more than their zeal. So I hope that helps, Dwayne. Thank you. Um, Shelley says, Pastor Ron, is it a sin to refer to God as she? I am thinking about the portrayal of God in the shack. Shelley, you get the prize. I haven't had a shack question for probably five years, three to five years. So uh, um, 
there ought to be some sort of consolation award for you as doing this. Uh, it is a sin to refer to God as she, uh, if you're talking about, well, God, whoever he or she is, or a feminist, you know, well, my God is a she, uh, that, that's a sin, that's blasphemy. Now, the portrayal of God in the shack is something completely different. For those of you who don't know, uh, Shaq was this best-selling uh, book. When I say best-selling, mega, 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 mega-selling um, uh, paperback book written by Paul Young. Uh, he has taken a lot of criticism uh, because people misunderstand his book. He has some real doctrinal issues in his life with Jesus. But this is a fiction book. And because it's fiction... He's portraying a God who meets people where they are. Now, he is, God is portrayed, the Father is portrayed as a big black uh, woman. Um, um, In the story, remember it's fiction, but it's based on Paul Young's personal experience. Paul Young was molested by men uh, in his life, men in positions of trust and authority. uh, And and, um, for, for Paul Young... As his life was sort of falling apart, uh, he couldn't relate to a God who was a man. He didn't feel safe in the in the in the sight of men or in the care of men, and so uh, God became who He needed Him to become in order to to show uh, Ray comfort. Now, in the shack, um, uh, the main character, Paul Young's character, was uh, an abused child, and. Uh, his neighbor was this black woman who was very kind and gave him shelter from the beating. And so when he went through his experience of converting to Christ, um, it was only natural that he saw her, God as a safe place. Now, if it was a sin, it would be that God would be portrayed that way through, but that's not the way God is portrayed all the way through that book. It's just the way it began. And that's God meeting people where they need to be met. That's how gracious, loving, and and uh, abounding in love, actually, our God really is. Shelley, the one way, and I, I won't take a lot of time on this, but I always think of this. Um, um, I've talked about this at church, but um, we we went on a, on a evangelism trip to New York City um, many, many years ago now. And um, we were, our only purpose was to hit the streets and tell people about Jesus. And um, that's kind of where our Joy of Jesus ministry was born. And uh, we were sharing with people everywhere and on subways. And we were taking the subway out to Coney Island. And, um, um, you know, as you get to Coney Island, sort of the end of the run. And so the, the train was, was emptying out as we would get stop after stop after stop. And the stop just before Coney Island was Bedford Stuy, which is a really, really horrible ghetto uh, in in New York. And there was a, a, a young black man. I'm going to guess he was probably in his early twenties, who was on the train with us, and we were sharing Jesus with him. And he kept asking questions, and he started by saying, uh, um, you know, I, I, I can't accept the white man's Jesus and all that kind of stuff. And so one lady in our group said, well, well, what makes you think he's a white man's God? And so this guy would sort of vent his, his issues. And um, she just said, look, God will meet you where you need to be met. If you need God to be black, he'll be black. And he said, you mean God would be that for me? And when she said yes, the Bible says, she said, and started quote scripture to him, uh, this man just, his heart opened wide and he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. We had a little bit longer to go as this tough gang member got off that train and we started really slowly uh, saying goodbye to him. He stood outside waving like an eight-year-old to us, tears flowing down both cheeks. And it was all because God met him where he needed to be met. That's who our God really is. So, Shelley, thanks for the chat question. Um, probably be another three years or more before I get another one. Here's a question from Charlie. 
He says, I have been in church my whole life, but only recently became born again. Why didn't the church I grew up in teach this? Charlie, you have no idea how many times I get asked this question. Um, People were raised in church, baptized in church, served in church, but never, ever were told that they had to be born again. Now, there's no excuse. I, I don't know which church you grew up in, but there's no excuse for them not doing it. But here's the problem. We don't teach the verse or, or the Bible verse by verse. We don't go through it with any sort of systematic chronology. We just sort of teach little sermons and messages and make people feel good. We're, we're, we're biblically illiterate as a church culture. And that is an absolute tragedy. Uh, I have a, um, um, a man who's become a friend of mine in our church uh, who recently went through the same kind of experience. And and his, he met a woman who was born again, and um, she kept asking him, and, and, you know, and he looked at me one day and goes, why didn't anybody tell me this? Being born again is the best thing ever. That's what this means. God became real to him. And there's no excuse that you weren't taught that. Um, it's just not a focus of a lot of churches. And if you grew up especially in a denominational church, uh, the truth is a lot of those pastors aren't even saved or born again themselves. So welcome to the family of God. I'm thrilled that you're born again. And that's why we stress here at Calvary Chapel uh, being born again, the need to be born again. Somebody comes up and I'm a Christian. Oh, great. We don't say what church background did you come from? We just say, oh, tell me, when were you born again? Um, so congratulations on on going from death to life. You may have been a good person. You may have done good things. You may have been in church your whole life. But you still fall short of the glory of God because all continue to sin continually. When you were born again, all of that sin was wiped away. Anybody who's not born again, by the way, when I say professing Christians or talking about real Christians, the only real Christians are born again believers. So it's not somebody who's a particular religion or they were baptized into a church, not somebody who's trying to do good or be good. The only people that get to heaven, John chapter 3, two times Jesus tells the most religious man in Israel that you of all people shouldn't be surprised when I say you must be born again. So thanks for the question and welcome to the family of God. 340-9585, Jerry asks, how do I tell if the guilt I am feeling is from God or from the devil? Let me change the word, Jerry, and maybe you can uh, understand it more easily. Guilt is never from God. Conviction is from God. Guilt is always from the devil. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Guilt is gone the minute you gave your life to Jesus Christ. Now, the devil's going to try to make you feel guilty. But you see, when we know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, when we experience the feeling of guilt, we can know it's from the enemy. It's a lie. It's poison. We need to get rid of it. And so we just, no, not going to do guilt. I've declared Calvary Chapel of San Antonio a no-guilt zone from the beginning of our time here. Nobody comes here and feels guilty. Now, I realize we're humans and we do all kinds of guilt. and In fact, some people are professionals at it. But we need never feel guilty. So, I said change the word to conviction. Conviction draws you to God. When God is piercing your heart about something going on in your life that he wants away, Conviction draws you to God. Now, we may resist for a little bit because we don't like to let go of things in our flesh. But if it's conviction of the Holy Spirit, then we we run to God in repentance. And then our sins are as far from us as east is from west. Now, if it's guilt as opposed to conviction, I said it's from the devil, well, that drives you away from God. If you ever said something like this, Jerry, you say, well, you know, I don't feel like going to church. I, I feel so bad. I've done something so terrible. I, I, I don't want to go to church. I, I feel like I don't even deserve to be there. Or I can't pray because I just can't imagine God would hear me. That's guilt, and that's from the devil. So that's the way to tell. If you are feeling like God won't accept you, that you have uh, lost his love or his favor, 
that's guilt, and it's from the pit of hell. Uh, if you feel convicted and you run to God for forgiveness, remember He's gracious, compassionate, abounding in love. He's slow to anger. So if you feel like God is angry with you, then that's guilt and it comes from the enemy. And you need to get rid of it as quickly as you can. I don't know why, Jerry, we humans, we like to think about, well, if I feel really bad long enough, well, then maybe God will forgive me. It's not that. In fact, just the opposite to Romans 3.24 says we are justified freely when he, Jesus, gave his life for us. One of the things I got right away as a Christian, and, and again, I take no credit for this. This is a work that God did in my heart when I didn't know anything. When I, I mean, I'm just saved. Uh, I was reading Romans 3, and I read Romans literally dozens of times when my first year or two of being saved, over and over and over and over and over. May may approach 100 times. And when I, one day when I was reading in Romans chapter 3, 24, I was dealing with some guilt over some stuff, and the Holy Spirit just kind of, in a good way, smacked me right in the face. And are justified freely. And then I thought, well, justified freely, just as if I'd never sinned. When did that happen? It happened at the cross 2,000 years ago. And right then the Holy Spirit convinced me that if I'm forgiven of stuff, why would I ever spend any time feeling bad about the stuff I did? And so when I sin, I'm sorry, and God knows my heart, but then I don't want to dwell on it one more minute of the day. And I I just rid myself of the guilt because I know that's from the enemy. So Jerry, that's the way to tell the difference. And if you can overcome this thing with guilt, believe me, you will live in freedom and joy that you you never could have imagined before. Here is a question from Anthony. Um, Pastor Ron, are there modern day prophets? I ask because some men and a woman in my church claims they are prophets. Anthony, uh, anybody today who says, I am a prophet of God is somebody you need to avoid. There is a gift of prophecy when somebody you're speaking to will will, uh, have a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or God will will convince uh, them of something uh, and and they'll they'll share with you. But it won't be a thus saith the Lord or they won't demand a platform in your life. You know, I'm a prophet, so listen to me or I'm super spiritual. It's not that at all. Um, These men and a woman are in every church They like the attention. They like speaking for God. For the life of me, I can't understand why. It is a fearful, dreadful thing to speak for God. Uh, A prophet has to be 100% accurate or he's branded immediately as a false prophet. And the the penalty for that was death by stoning. Um, And yet still, there are men and women who insist they are prophets of God and they think somehow that gives them some spiritual superiority over the rest of us. There are no prophets. Ephesians chapter 2 says apostles and prophets are the foundation, and the Greek is clear, already laid, past tense. And the church is being built on that foundation. So the church is being built present tense, on a foundation already laid in the past tense. So the apostles and prophets, who are they? The apostle Paul, the, the, the apostles that followed Jesus, um, the writers of the New Testament were all prophets. Uh, uh, Agabus, Philip's four daughters were prophetesses. But when the word of God came, that foundation was laid securely and the church is being built now on the foundation of the word of God. So stay away from those people. And I would also Um, conclude, Anthony, and this is a general conclusion on my part, that you're probably in church that isn't very healthy or well-balanced because um, if if I had somebody at Calvary Chapel San Antonio going around telling people they were prophets, uh, those people would be dealt with immediately. And we've had them come. Pastor, the Lord gave me a word for you. I'm a prophet. The Lord gave me a word from you, and I'll stop them right there and say, you know, God knows how to get a hold of me. He speaks to me through his word. 
And so I just would rather not hear it at all. And they get kind of huffy and leave, which again proves they're not sent by God. So Anthony, no prophets, no apostles. Um, that foundation is already laid and the church is being built. And we have the fullness of God's word given to us in our Bibles. 340-9585. We've still got time for some calls for questions if you're out there. Um, it's another Anthony. I don't know if it's the same one or not. I have a question about long-term monogamous relationships outside of marriage. Is that sinful? Uh, if you mean long-term sexual relationships outside of marriage, Anthony, of course that's sinful. Um, they're, they're, they're the only sanctified sexual relationship is between a husband and a wife, period. Sex is a wonderful gift that's been given to us by God. He makes it so enjoyable, and that's his plan for sex. But it doesn't matter if by long-term and monogamous you mean, well, we've been going together for a really long time, and we just decided we can't, uh, we don't want to stop having sex. That's sin. All sex outside of marriage, heterosexual, homosexual, all sex outside of marriage is sin. And so the answer to your question is yes. I have a feeling you knew it was yes. Um, you must be married to enjoy this gift of God. So I hope that is as clear as I can possibly be. Dwayne says, Why is it that only Matthew mentions the Old Testament saints coming out of the tombs? Um, Dwayne, we have to remember, the Holy Spirit is the real author. He was pushing the pens of, of men. And as Matthew writes this, um, the Holy Spirit, Matthew is the most Jewish of all the gospel accounts. His focus is on the fulfillment of all the prophecies concerning the Christ or the Messiah. And um, um, Matthew, uh, Levi, the tax collector, being a Jew, uh, would focus more seriously, naturally, on Jewish issues. And uh, Matthew included it for whatever the Holy Spirit's reasoning uh, none of the other gospel writers were led by God to include it. Um, the fact that only Matthew mentions it doesn't diminish its value, nor does it diminish its truthfulness at all. It's just something that, as uh, Matthew was getting ready to sign off in chapter 27, I think it's verse 58, but um, um, the Holy Spirit was pushing the pen of Matthew, and he wanted him to include that. And and, and personally, I, I, I get this question a lot um, um, about the, the, the people coming out of the tombs, um, who they were and what was going on. I personally think that this was God simply witnessing two Jews. Remember, for the first many, many years of the church in the book of Acts, until the Apostle Paul was saved, um, the, the church was entirely Jewish. And I think the righteous dead who were out of the tombs and then after Jesus rose from the dead, they went into the city to share. I think that was Jesus himself making a deposit among Jews for those who would gather on the first day of the church that we can read about in Acts chapter 2. It was the Holy Spirit preparing them. It's, it's Matthew 27, verse 53, not verse 58. So thank you for that. Um, but but I, I think, uh, you know, if you saw somebody that you knew was dead, and we don't know if these were the recently departed dead, the righteous, or, or they were the, the, some of the Old Testament heroes. Um, we don't know. Um, what we do know is that there were righteous Jews, and they were declaring the wonders of God, declaring the, 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 the arrival, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and you've got to admit, some 50 days later, when... Um, all those people were gathered on the day of Pentecost. There's a whole bunch of people. The Bible says they were pricked in their heart as the Holy Spirit fell. Brothers, what shall we do? I think a lot of that was the deposit that God placed in them with the testimony of those Jews who came out of the tombs and went into the city. Again, that's only speculation. We're not told. Uh, but I like thinking about, well, why is this there? So thanks, Dwayne. Good question. I think we have time for one more. We'll get... Yeah, two minutes. Okay, I got two minutes. Um, oh, here's what I can do in two minutes. Easy. 
Anonymous says, do you think the changing weather is a sign from God instead of being global warming or climate change? Um, Anonymous weather has been changing from the beginning of time. Uh, We go through times of rain, times of cold, times of heat. Uh, We have Dust Bowl um, history in the United States. Uh, The weather changes. It's always been that way. So it's not a sign from God. Uh, It's certainly not global warming or climate change. This is just the way weather has always been. You know, when when, uh, Al Gore first started talking about global warming, uh, and now that goes back 20 years or so, um, uh, he, he said, no, the world's only got so many more years left. They're still saying that, by the way. And, and, and all those deadlines keep being passed. And none of the Americans say, well, we were wrong. Uh, and, and the reason climate change came about is because the world would be plunged into these really, really cold climates and cold times where, where the extremes would get, get greater, whether it's heat or, or cold. And so, well, we can't call it global warming because it's really cold now, so it's just climate change. That's a sign of, of things. It's just, if you know your Bible, the world is going to be here when Jesus comes back and sets foot on the Mount of Olives. So don't worry about it, Anonymous. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. This has been the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back, Lord willing, tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.